You know, today is a, it's an interesting and an outstanding day in the life of the church. Uh, it's Pentecost, and a lot of confusion seems to happen revolving around the Holy Spirit. And I'm hoping today that, that we get a couple of clues uh, and talk through a little bit of the things that will help us to better understand the power, the presence, and the reality of the Holy Spirit that's in us. But before we do that, I, I kind of want to get us to a, a place where in our heads we are where we need to be today. So um, I kind of want you to just uh, close your eyes for a second. Those of you at home, close your eyes. And I want you to just kind of just take a breath or two and just release what's happening in the world around you. You know, some of us, there's like Allison said, there's pain that's happening. There's things that are going on. Maybe we're looking for jobs. Maybe there's a challenge in our family. Just, just release that for a second. Maybe there's some anxiety. Maybe there's hopes and wants that aren't happening. Just just release that for a second. And I want you to just clear your mind as we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit today. Okay, go ahead and open up your eyes for a second. So, so it's important for us to really connect with who the Holy Spirit is. Now, uh, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about what was going on with the disciples. So we just saw this great video. It talked about how the disciples came together in one room and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit was released. A powerful, positive things are going on. Ruach is the uh, Hebrew word for mighty wind. That is happening. We see like uh, flames on top of people's heads, speaking languages that people had not spoken before. So something special was happening on this day. So this is kind of a culmination of uh, the disciples are remembering at this moment about Jesus' ministry. Remember, at this particular point, if you're not familiar with the story, at this particular point, Jesus has died. Um, his tomb has been empty. Easter has happened. This is uh, some 50 days after uh, the day of Jesus' death and resurrection. And all of a sudden, the disciples are going through a lot of emotion. So think about a time in your life when you were emotional, when, when you thought that something that you were banking on, something that you just thought was going to happen didn't, or maybe there's something that's happening to a loved one in your life that, that you thought you could hopefully change and you couldn't. It's emotional, and it brings a lot of emotion. So, so the disciples are feeling this sense of, of emptiness. They're feeling empty that they can't see Jesus, touch Jesus, talk to Jesus, live into what Jesus is happening so it's this emptiness that's there. So, so let me just share with you a story in my life that um, describes an emptiness. And, and the reason I'm going to tell you this story is because I want you to relate to a story in your life. As I'm speaking, as you're hearing what I'm saying, I want you to think about a story in your life about how, how you felt similarly. Well, my story begins in February of 2018. I was here at the church. I was uh, working. And um, uh, Patty had, uh, my wife Patty had called me and uh, had told me that the time was progressing very rapidly for her mother to die. Now, Patty's mother was a pillar of health. We, we never had any concerns about her health her entire life. Um, in fact, we thought she would live to be well over 100 years of age. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, out of nowhere, cancer comes into the picture, and she went from this vibrant, life-giving person uh, to an individual that, that was stricken really uh, determinedly with cancer and whose life was coming to an end. And so Patty's like, she's saying to me, you need to come now to Orlando. And as I'm gathering things up and jumping in my car and I'm driving out of here, you know, a couple of things were going through my mind. What was going through my mind was, can today be a day I can actually get out of Tampa uh, so it doesn't take me five hours to get to Orlando? 
And if you've ever tried to get out of Tampa all times during the day, you know what that's like. It's difficult. And the second thing that was on my mind was that, that I knew I would have to speed to get there because my wife had said the time was coming very rapidly. And uh, so I had to speed. So I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I hope if I get pulled over today that the highway patrol, the police, the, the county sheriff, whoever, the deputy who happens to pull me over, that they'll be able to understand what's going on and they'll be able to let me go so that I can get where I need to be. And the whole time I'm driving down fiercely uh, Interstate 4 trying to get into Orlando, my phone is ringing and Patty is keeping me informed. And one of the last conversations that she said on the phone before I got there was, come quickly, it's going to be soon, please don't be late. And I remember when I got to the house, I raced out of the car, the hospice workers were there, and I ran inside and mother was in a, one of those hospital beds right there in the living room and Patty and her sister were already there. And I remember being able to just kneel down and to just love on her and to care about her. And, and as we just, you know, kind of talked to her to just reassure her everything was going to be okay. And I noticed that um, her breaths were getting very shallow, they were getting very long, apnea was setting in all the telltale signs that death is coming. And then it happened. She, she died, and she went home to be with Jesus. And, and so Patty and I were sitting there in the dark um, with her mom's body there, and we were just kind of loving on each other, and we were just kind of taking up and in everything that's happening. And we were thanking God for for her mom's life, that God loved us enough to bless us with her. We were, we were just thanking God for this time that we had had with her and how she was so precious to us. And then it got real quiet. And then my wife utters some words I thought I would never hear. In fact, I wasn't even anticipating them. Out of the quiet, she says, I'm now an orphan. And why'd she say that? I mean, you know, her dad had died uh, in 2014. Her mom was her last living relative. And she said, I, I'm an orphan. And I thought about that. And, you know, every person outside of me and obviously her immediate family that she loved was gone. But from a parent-child relationship, that's the word. I'm an orphan. And I thought about, you know, how cruel that is of a word, orphan. You know, because when we think about the word orphan, we think about um, connotations that come with that. We think about someone who's not wanted or, or we think about someone who's been abandoned or someone who's cast aside it's someone who's lonely, who's without, and we could probably come up with thousands of definitions of what might be in your mind and those that are live streaming about what it means or what, it think, what you think about it being an orphan. And I thought about, you know, how, how tough, but how true. And, and as I'm thinking about the story of Pentecost, that's where the disciples were, right? So the disciples had found themselves in this upper room. They, they had been hiding, so to speak. They were scared. Um, the political environment hadn't changed. People were out to get them. They were trying to find them. Um, and, and they just weren't sure what was going to happen. And they themselves found that they were orphaned as well. When I sit with people whose loved ones are dying, my experience is, is that their loved ones are saying, I don't want to die yet. I don't want to leave you. I want to stay. But yet, Ultimately, they know death comes and we're orphaned. So think about that for a second. I want us to get in the pit of our stomach what the disciples were feeling that day. They were feeling alone, abandoned, let go, let down. 
I mean, think about it for a second. You know, they found themselves in this place, and, and the one that they had loved, Jesus, the one that, that said that, that he would be with them, the one that they had followed, all those things in this vast ministry that Jesus had, and they had forgotten uh, the fact that he had said to them so many times that the time will come that I must leave you. And they had kind of, I guess, gotten so um, enamored and caught up in just this conversation in this life with Jesus that, that they didn't really hear what he said. He said, I'm leaving you. And I have to think for a second, you know, when, they, when Jesus started saying that, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, this example, I'm going to leave you, this example, I'm going away. And, and all of a sudden, it makes me sit there and go like, the disciples had to be going like, what, do you mean, what are you talking about? You're leaving? I mean, at the pinnacle of his ministry career, Things seem to be going well. I mean, healings are happening. The, the, the feeding of the masses has occurred. 5,000 had received uh, the food uh, that Jesus had produced through five loaves and two fish. And all of a sudden, what do you mean you're leaving? And they felt abandoned and they felt alone. But here's the thing that I think really tripped them up. Not only was it just that Jesus said, I'm leaving you, but, but here's what he said in, in John 16, 7. I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. I mean, who wants to hear that? So think about somebody that you love. Think about somebody that you uh, admire, somebody you respect, somebody who's an integral part of your life, and they look at you and say, I'm leaving because it's better for you that I go. I mean, when you're really in a relationship with somebody, you don't want to hear those words, do you? But that's what Jesus is conveying to his disciples. I mean, how could it be good that Jesus would be going away. What good can come from that? I mean, again, all these experiences that they had, these were great life-changing experiences. What good can come from Jesus leaving? I mean, if we think about it, Jesus had said on many occasions that, that he's going to leave, but he also said these words, I am not going to leave you orphaned. Did you catch that? I'm leaving... I'm not going to be with you. I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you orphaned. Right after um, these fantastic words that John records in chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, when I hear those words, let not your heart be troubled, I'm hearing words of affirmation. I'm hearing words of comfort. I'm hearing words that are not going to make me feel bad about what's going to happen, but I'm hearing somebody's like, give me a big old bear hug going like, it's going to be okay. And so Jesus, shortly after he says the words, let not your hearts be troubled, he says this, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything <clears throat> that I have said to you. That word is really important, remind you of everything that I've said to you. Jesus is giving us a clue that there's some things that he's going to tell or has told these disciples that they're going to forget. So in his own flesh, in his own ability, yes, he's Lord, yes, he's divine, yes, he's the incarnation, he is God in man, he is God with human skin, but what we find out here is he's saying, but the things that I'm teaching you, some of you you're not going to retain some of this, but this person who's coming will. He also says, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father will testify against me, or, or testify about me. So in other words, um, here he says again, I am not going to leave you orphaned, that I am going to send somebody else to come and care for you. 
I'm going to send someone else who is different than me, but you are going to relate to them in such a special way that it's going to make your life complete, even more complete than me being here with you is really what he's saying. Fortunately, Jesus explained this reason, and, he, and he go, let's go on in John 14. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So, so that word forever is extremely important. Here, they're starting to put two and two together that Jesus is going to leave them, so he's not gonna be with them forever. They're starting to connect the dots that, that something's gonna happen here, but yet he says to them, even though I'm leaving the person I'm sending will be with you forever. And so, so this is a glimpse of this beautiful love of God that despite when we can't see Jesus, when we cry out to Jesus, when we're like a person on the side, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, when he's not there, we are not abandoned by God. The Holy Spirit is with us. Now the picture begins to unfold. So, so the Father sent the Son to accomplish a specific work. And that was to attest to the love of God. For God so loved the world, as John says, that he gave his one and only son. It's what John writes, that whoever believes in him shall never die. Jesus is speaking these words. And we see the significance of that. So, so God would show that, that love by sacrificing his son on the cross was to pay the penalty of our sin. But yet, that penalty, once it's paid and Jesus is, is, is put to death and in a tomb and is raised for all eternity, that something else is coming on the heels of this. And this is what the disciples couldn't put two and two together with. They had put everything into the identity of Jesus on earth. And when Jesus died, many of them began to think about, what am I doing? Is this all for naught? And Jesus said, someone greater is coming. You see, it was, it was better for the disciples to understand that they were going to have the invisible Holy Spirit in them than it was for them to have Jesus with them. Did you catch that? It was better that the disciples, and you and I understand, it's better to have the Holy Spirit in us than it is to have Jesus with us. So many of us will say, man, I just wish I, you know, I could just walk with Jesus. That's a true statement. That's a beautiful statement. But what Jesus is saying is, is that that's not going to last. What's going to last is the Holy Spirit in you. And that's the transformation that he's talking to us about. So, so probably the best way for us to understand this is the life of Peter. You know, Peter, uh, sometimes I think Peter gets a bad rap, but part of it is I think he brings it on himself. And, and so when we read the scriptures and we look at the identity of Peter and we look at historical documents, we come to understand that, that Peter is this kind of um, impulsive personality that Peter oftentimes speaks before he listens. I know nobody in the room does that, right? And um, especially nobody over in this section over here. But so then, um, and no, I'm not talking about you. You know who I'm talking about. But anyway, so, <laughs> so anyway, so what we find is, is that, um, you know, Peter, uh, Peter is impulsive, and, and he's, but yet he's that person that says that he's going to follow Jesus no matter what. And so what we find out here is, is that, that he understood the, the, he misunderstood the meanings of Jesus' teachings. And so when Jesus is arrested, instead of going to Jesus, instead of living into the words, I will never let them take you, I will die before that happens, remember, Peter said that, <clears throat> Peter runs away. He hides. 
He flees, and he denies ever knowing Jesus in the first place. So, so why was Peter so weak? Why was he mistake-prone? I mean, how could Peter deny the Messiah who had selected him? Jesus personally selected and chose Peter to be a part of that inner circle. How could Peter, after that honor and walking with Jesus and all that, seeing all those miracles that he saw, how could that same Peter deny Jesus? Well, did Peter like a great role model? Did he need a better teacher? I mean, maybe the teacher. Jesus was his teacher. Jesus was his role model. So, so it's not like Peter didn't have a, the right influencer in his life. It's not like he didn't have the perfect teacher, the perfect person to lead him into this relationship with God. Peter had all of that. But yet what we find out is even though Peter had all the resources, he didn't use them. Peter discovered something that we all have a tendency to discover sometimes, that faith is not all intellectual. Some of us pride how we can quote scripture. There's nothing wrong with quoting scripture. We're told to quote scripture. Some of us pride ourselves in theological reflections or I can tell you what this means, this parable, and, and you know, whatever the case may be. But, but, but yet, Jesus is trying to help us to see it's not about this intellectual journey. It's not about us. It's about God. And it's about what God is doing in our life. So, so therefore, yes, Jesus in the flesh taught the disciples, but what Jesus could not give to them, the Holy Spirit does, and that is the Spirit in them and therefore, God is forever inside, both you and me. You see, with three and a half years of excellent discipleship under his belt, Peter learned that truth. And that truth is we can't just think about the scriptures. We can't say that we know the scriptures. We actually have to live them. We have to obey them. We, we have to do something with it. We can't just say, oh, yeah, I can recite that. I know what that is. <clears throat> so even the best discipleship training if we're not careful, even the best spiritual accountability proved insufficient for Peter because no outward teaching can compare to the inward power of the Holy Spirit. Are you following me? So it's this power that the Spirit gives us. It's this connection of God. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you orphan, but this is what you're getting you know, the Father sent the Son. The Son now is working in collaboration with the Father. The Spirit comes, and you will need. So, so if we need proof of this, we can look at Peter's life. Remember, before Jesus was killed, before, you know, during that time of arrest, Peter ran. He, he fled. He did all those things. Jesus has risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has been released at Pentecost. The Spirit is in Peter and the other disciples, and we immediately see a paradigm shape shift of who Peter is. He's no longer this cowering person who's running to, to, because of fear of his own life. He is standing in the midst of culture, and he is proclaiming with authority the Word of God. And Peter, the thing that's not different is, is that the, the, the social climate, the political climate didn't change during that time of Jesus' arrest and death and the time of Pentecost. It actually was the same. But Peter changed. So what Peter could not get in the flesh through the teachings of Jesus, Jesus gave to him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what made Peter become an effective witness. That's what gave Peter the power to preach a sermon, to bring 3,000 converts immediately 
on that day of Pentecost as people flocked in. Jesus said, I tell you, it's, it's good for you that I'm going away. And Jesus was saying, if I'm physically with you, this power cannot come. Yes, you're going to miss me. Yes, we're going to miss our loved ones. Yes, when death comes, but there's power that comes when the Holy Spirit resides within you. The Christian church was born on Pentecost Sunday, and that power resided in the church. As we read through the book of Acts, as we look at the the writings and the letters of Paul, we see a picture of the early church the way that God intended it to be. In Acts 2.42, it says that they devoted themselves daily to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so often I hear people say, well, when, when can our church be an Acts 2 church? When can we just like love each other? Well, guys, we should already be that. That's not something that says we have to change to be that. If we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit, if we are living in the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by the love that you share, that you will love others as I have chosen to love you. When we start pulling all that together, we are an Acts 2 church, capital C. But yet what we find here is they actually believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. They believed it was real. Here was a community of believers who who freely loved the word of God. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. No one was, was badgered. No one was coerced. No one was forced to go to worship. No one was forced to give. No one was, was told you have to go deeper in your discipleship. Get in a small group. No one was forced to come to worship. They did it because the Spirit was in them. They had an appetite, and that appetite made them hunger for what God had planned for their life. Not only had the Holy Spirit been sent to the earth, but, but he's also con- con- continuously moving The Holy Spirit moves through the people of God. And this is the challenge that I think that we often get caught up in. Is we say, I want to be an Acts 2 church. I want to see miracles in my church. I want to see people saved. I want to see people healed and all that. Guys, none of that's changed. The question is, do we, the church, believe in that power? Do we believe and will we claim the power? Jesus said, you will do far greater works than I ever did. And are we? So I think as Christians, we have to ask ourselves these tough questions. Are we cerebrally living our faith, or are we allowing and acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is in us, and therefore the power to change? You know, I, I sometimes wonder, if the early Christians came back to the church today, what would they say? Would they say it's a vibrant witness? Would they say that, that wow, there's, there's wonders and works and all those things? Would they, would they even recognize the brand of Christianity that you and I live in today? Would they see the power? Or would they find a, a, a brand of Christianity that's kind of lukewarm? Would they find a brand of Christianity that, that's all about, you know, memorization of things or, or making ourselves better than others? Would they find our witness less intellectual in nature and more driven by the power of the Spirit and transformation happening. How much loss do we suffer when we don't expect the power of the Holy Spirit? We should see miracles today, folks. We should see vibrancy in the witness of Jesus Christ. 
We should see the kingdom's work advancing in our lifetime, and we should be a part of that. Why? Because we recognize that the Holy Spirit is in us, and Jesus promised that that would give us the power. Think, think about it for a second. I mean, let, let's take this back. Let's, 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 the Christian church, we the Christian church, let's stop being somewhat apathetic or even apathetic about what we believe. Let's take back this promise that Jesus gave, that God the Father has instilled in us. Let's take back the witness. Let's take back the power. Let's take back the energy. Let's take back the focus. Let's be the church that God created us to be. And let's be the witness in our community and the world so that everyone knows the love of Jesus Christ. Let's stop holding it. And let's do something with it. And let's change the world today.